Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming your way. Episode 190. Steve Smee and the Mobster joining me from across the pond. What's up, buddy? Here we are. We're going to do the voice of bodybuilding, as he's known, Bob Chick Arillo. So he's known also as Bob Chick. So, yep. Some information on Bob. Uh, those of you who don't know, remember the old American Gladiators episodes. He was in that. He did some episodes. He did. He was in that. His name was Titan back in those days. And of course, the new Titan was Michael Hearn, who was on the recent American Gladiators. But the new, newer American Gladiators, I don't know if you have it in, in uh, Britain, Mobster. It's just not as good as the original. Not even close. The original American Gladiators was awesome. That was that was a great, great thing. He's also known as being a big guy in the industry. Um, he He's done a lot of stuff. He has competed in competitions throughout the 80s, 90s, and all the way up to 2006, where he did the Masters. So we're going to go over all this stuff. He was also part of the Mr. Olympia um, one year as well. And he's been in the Arnold Classic. So he never was a huge bodybuilder, but he's also, but he is a big time, a, definitely a big time voice of bodybuilding. And he's definitely been pretty active in the bodybuilding community. So, yeah, Mobster, give us your thoughts, and we'll kind of get into a little bit about his history. Steve's talking, when he says big, he's talking in his impact on the sport as a bodybuilder. But physically, he's a big man. He's six foot tall, Steve, and competed at 255, 260 on stage and was walking around at roughly 280 pounds off stage. And, 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 and I'm just thinking of those lovely suits that he wears. When he's emceeing, he still looks like a physically big man. And in fact, one of the comments I saw in a, a, a bit of pre-show research was that there was quite often he would be doing interviews for certain video uh, interviews, etc., through throughout the, the, the late nights and 2000s, as you say. And he would be the bigger person on the video. And that wasn't just as with somebody but as uh, angling them. Again, six foot tall and 280 pounds in a suit, in, in leisure wear, wherever else, interviewing a lean and dry bodybuilder competing on stage, when suddenly you realize that these guys are 250 off season and 230 on stage. Bob is a big physical specimen. Uh, and I think that actually has its uses, Steve. When you're up there on stage, you are, uh, lots of MCs are great vocally, but Bob is not just great vocally, but he's physically impressive. I mean, there's some negatives you can throw at stuff, but his physique, his, his the impression he makes, Standing there with the microphone behind the podium on stage is a big, big man uh, and, and still stays in that kind of shape, Steve. Back to you. Yeah, as Mobster said, his statistics, chest listed at 58 inches, huge. Arms, 22 and a half inches, huge. Thighs, 31 inches. Waist in contest prime shape, 31 inches. So a guy of that size to be 31 inch waist, you got to, you know, got to respect yeah. that for sure. He's definitely a huge guy his calves also listed at 21 inches so he earned his pro card at the 2000 usas 
13 hard years of competing in amateur contests. And some of his history started training when he was just 12 years old. He competed in his first contest at just 13 years old. That's and crazy. He's done, yep. So he's been really, really involved with it from an early age. Yeah. Uh, his first official bodybuilding competition was 1981 Natural America. He placed fourth in the teen tall class. And his first NPC National Physique Committee event was a 1987 NPC Junior Nationals. And he won the uh, he won in the fur in the heavyweight class division mobster. Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Is that something that I thought was funny? When he talks about that competition, age 13, would you believe he did the quad shake? He said, I was hamming it up something chronic on stage, to use my, my turn of phrase, up there shaking his quads, cupping his hand to his ear, doing all that showman type stuff, age 13, Steve. The man had it bad. That was in his blood to compete. 13 years of age. I think we've done, as you say, probably 90-something hardcore podcasts, and I can't think of a single athlete that we've done that's competed at 13 years of age. And not only was he competing at 13 years of age, he was using them pro tricks from day one. That's kind of crazy. I say I never knew that until I literally read it a few minutes before the show started. See, that's kind of, I love that shit. That's great. So one of the things aside from, you know, we're going to get into his competitions, but one of the things that he was known for is he co-hosted the radio show and podcast Pro Bodybuilding Weekly. Yes. with Dan Solomon. Yeah. And then he was involved with bodybuilding.com. Then he got with BSN. So he's been involved also with, uh, he's been in tons of fitness magazines, featured on the cover of Flex Magazine. That's always a highlight for anybody to be on that cover. He once appeared in the television sitcom Malcolm in the Middle. So he's been on TV shows as well. And he's been... You know, on ESPN Sports Center with Stuart Scott, the late great Stuart Scott. Everyone knows who he is, who, who watches ESPN. He's been in a music video called You Are My Number One, song by the band Smash Mouth. And then in the movie, 2004 movie Dodgeball, I honestly haven't seen Dodgeball, a true underground story. I know it's a comedy. Um, he was a, he played a role in that movie as Rory, who was a bodybuilder at the Ben Stiller's uh, gym. In, in the movie. So he's also a Screen Actors Guild member, which is a American labor union, which is involved with 100,000 film and television principal background performers worldwide. So that's, that's really cool. And then, as I mentioned earlier, he was Titan on the original American Gladiators mm-hmm. TV series. So he's had quite a career mobster and we haven't even yes. talked about his competitions. Uh, we haven't gotten to the meat of his competitions yet. Well, what he really does now. I mean, let's be honest. One of the comments I made in my show notes, guys, I put, I put inverted commas, hustler. And I know, I, I'm going to say this in a positive way. So something we, we've talked about on this podcast, Steve, is the, the business of bodybuilding, the business of being an athlete. And not all athletes understand that. And I think actually Bob in an interview with bodybuilding.com touched on it in that particular way. He's talking about how you present yourself, which I should touch on in a minute as the MC. And, and also, uh, you know, I mean, a good, a good example with Rich Piana talking about the money that he was making in, in Planet of the Apes, the, the modern versions of those movies. 
that being available, being a member of the guild that Steve just talks about, putting yourself out there, but being essentially what amounts to a proper, proper, proper professional athlete. Now, what a lot of athletes do, and, and there's um, some podcasts out there, just touched on this recently, Steve, it's almost, I mean, bodybuilding and bullshit, I think, touches on this, where I'm not going to name the athlete that he discussed, but he says, you know, this guy's jumping from sponsor to sponsor. He's discussing uh, and promoting a sponsor he hasn't signed with while he's still with the previous sponsor. You have to be a professional. So if you have contractual obligations, that means being available, turning up on time, working with photographers, working with videographers, working with people that do YouTube, understanding how collaborations work, and understanding how Instagram works. And I've got to be honest, Steve, I think Bob was kind of ahead of the curve in, the, uh, curve in this particular way. So doing all the things that you've mentioned, he wasn't a great Olympia top 10 top five type athlete but as a professional he's right up there at the front of the pack and I think sometimes and I've the, the most negative I've seen some comments about Bob essentially having his own self-interest at heart above other athletes but if you think about it Bob's actually spent, said when he was talking about this criticism and I think it related to how he was dealing with athletes for the Mr Olympia and I don't just mean his emceeing, but backstage talking about the athletes, being part of the press conference and so on and so forth. What I mean by that was, is that Bob was quite clear. If you're not dressing properly, like in a nice suit, shirt and tie fitted, you're, you're winning $100,000 and you're turning up in a tracksuit. Whether that's working with Dan, for example, and being aware of your promotion of the sport. And that promotes you just as an athlete or in... in um, Rob, uh, Bob's case as the, in a sport in general and how that involves. If you're interviewed, for example, by the media, that, and I mean other media, not bodybuilding media, representing a sport in that particular way. And again, look at all the different things that he's done to make a living. It's not just a supplement sponsor. It's not just a check on the, on the monthly basis. It's getting out there and working with all these different mediums. And that I think we talk about in the modern vernacular, Steve, multiple income streams. And Bob has that down pat. He was doing this stuff 10 years ago when everybody else has really only caught on in the last five years. The money that can be made from Instagram, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think one of the few things he's not doing, Steve, is selling supplements and doing training programs for people. He's pretty much doing everything else. And here's the thing again. Look at who he's hooking up with. He's hooking up with ESPN. He's hooking up with a huge TV program back in the day. The UK version, Steve, was Saturday night fodder. It was 100% in the hotspot on a Saturday night. I know that the older versions of uh, Gladiators in America was the same. These were the top, top TV programs of the time. And your physique is on display. So I think Bob gets that and got it before anybody else. Certainly ahead of almost everybody else. Maybe Arnold would be the one obvious exception who completely understands how this works and able wants to manipulate the media. There is some argument for Bob being a little bit more focused on what Bob wants, but is it still a good example of how to be a proper, and I use this and a kind of underlined version of what a professional is supposed to be like. So remind, remember that, guys. You might think sometimes that Bob has got his own self-interest, et cetera, et cetera, but look, he's turning up in a shirt and a tie and a suit and a jacket. It all fits. It's custom-made. 
He's making sure that he's available on time. He speaks in a positive way. It's all done to help the sport and to help Bob. That's how it should be. If you're an athlete, you don't just have to, you know, get out and pop your pegs and show your bicep. It's not just about signing photographs. There's a number of other things you can be doing. And it's all about being a positive role model and being a professional in all those aspects. Now, some of you guys, if you end up in a particular way, you can hire people to do this. But Bob's doing this stuff for himself. He shows you that it can be done. And it's not that hard to be that way. I can understand if you're training your ass off, if you die and you're super tired, that's what people help you with. Bob, fortunately, made a career outside of not being a Mr. Olympia and a good career, Steve. Back to you. So there are some, I'm going to give you guys, you know, on his uh, Instagram, he's got about 50, 60,000 followers on the Instagram. I'm going to give you some of his businesses. Um, I did actually find Mobster just, just on that. Uh, he does actually have a supplement called a uh, supplement brand called Max Out Sports. And he, okay. he lists himself as the founder. And I, I checked them out. All they really have on there, it seems, is pre-workouts and, and some like t-shirts and stuff like that. So it's not a huge... So you're no. right. He doesn't have like a huge supplement brand or anything, but he has a few yeah. products only. Um, and he, he lists himself as a founder. He also um, lists himself as the host of Mr. Olympia LLC and also of Arnold Sports, and also VOB Podcast, and also he has a YouTube channel called Voice of Bodybuilding. But again, it's very small. He only has, let's see, two, four, six, eight, nine videos, and he just started it seven months ago. So he's got, uh, he's looks like he's just starting to dip his water a little bit in, in, in some, in this new Voices of Bodybuilding uh, YouTube channel. But he does have other things on YouTube that you guys can check out. Yeah, go ahead, Monster. Yep, you want to chime in. I was going to be back in here, Steve, because that, the thing that I've talked about, funny enough, just recently, before we even decided that we're going to do this particular podcast, it came up. And in fact, what you mentioned about the videos, he's actually been probably interviewed more times on other people's channels and discussed more times on other people's channels than he's done with himself. And there's a good reason for this, I think, right? Here, here's the thing. And I've been, for my sins, briefly busy back in the day when I was doing the exhibition work, three weekends on the trot, five, six, seven shows a year. Uh, again, this is probably at my absolute peak. And I wasn't a guy that wanted to do lots and lots of these things. The three weeks on the trot was good fun. And certainly earned some bucks out of doing that. The six, seven events in a year for the same reason. But on, again, on a regular basis, if you're trying to compete, those things are difficult. What Bob probably does best is MC. And what I mean by that, guys, for those of you who are unsure, he... If you do a big bodybuilding competition, Grand Prix level, as it used to be back in the day, whether it's, a, 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 for example, an Arnold Brazil, an Arnold Ohio, Mr. Olympia, which would be the be all and end all, you can have some competitions there. You can have hundreds of athletes. Other competitions slightly less. And we had a really good guy over here. His name escapes me right now. And he went out of his way to learn how to pronounce. He would go backstage and talk to the athletes, especially the foreign athletes, and learn how to pronounce their names. So when he was on stage, he had them, he pronounced them beautifully. If something happened during the competition, he handled it. We, we, we I think it was a Mr. Universe when a streaker managed to get on stage. And he said, I think that's contestants forgotten his un, you know, opposing trunks or something like that. And it was one of us that made the audience laugh and, and it, you know, stage hands chasing after this idiot. And this guy just like, wait until it was done. No, no drama, 
moves on to the next thing. And Bob, that's the thing I think with Bob is is he's probably at uh, certain parts of the year away at competitions every weekend, and he will be there arriving on site to do interviews. Be there for the if they have one, the press conference, uh, doing a bunch of other stuff for social media. And then being on stage and not um, the whole time, Steve, this can be hours prejudging, but especially in the night show, voiceovers, all that kind of stuff. It's, if you've ever done any of these kind of things, and I've done a couple, what feels like if you're an audience member, it's a four hour show. But if you're working, it's an all day long thing. And I mean like 12 hours because you will get there early. You would go and talk to the right people early. You would even have a, you know, have a show breakfast with these people to make sure you know what's happening during the afternoon. Has there been any changes? And this is a kind of, I say it's like a full-time occupation for Bob. It really is. And you're getting to the point now where I think he could probably do 40 weekends a year. Like, like the podcast we've done on wrestlers before, that means you're traveling sometimes from one side of the States to the other, sometimes out of the States and into foreign countries landing, doing a 12-hour shift, playing around with all those different names, handling any drama, and keeping the show moving. That might mean an earpiece, you're working with the production team and so on and so forth. This is, a, it's not, it's, it seems sometimes with this stuff, and again, bodybuilding show, we're not talking about a big TV show, something like that, but it's, it's multimedia, it's Underneath those bright lights, it's dealing with difficult names. It's dealing with any changes to the to the running time. It's dealing with stuff when things overrun, and it's it's being present for all those things with the multimedia stuff that we're aware of now, with the social media, with the Instagram, with interviews, with photographic stuff, etc., etc., etc. Stuff that's going to be shown on the day, as it typically is now, and stuff that's going to be shown later on. And Bob's right there in the middle of it. And especially for the night show, and again, suited and booted underneath those bright lights for four hours and keeping things moving and working with the, the for example, quite often have voiceovers. I think Bill Heath and Dan did one. Uh, Dennis James has done one in the past. You, you talk about athletes that know other athletes that have retired and they're doing the voiceovers for the uh, live stream, for example. So there's a lot of stuff going on. And as I said, I'm thinking, I think he talks about 30 competitions, but I suspect that's the, especially now that we're getting back into post-COVID stuff, everybody's going to be making up for lost time. It could be two in a week, Steve. So he's a busy, busy guy. And again, this is like one of those opportunities. I've done that stuff in a day. You might have three on the trot and then nothing for months. If this is your living and it is Bob's living, you take those roles, you do those jobs, and then that you might not, as I say, work. And then again, for two months, three months, four months, there are certain times of year when the competitions are back to back. And now, especially, I think that's going to be the case. So he could be from one side or the other to the country, two competitions in a week, three, four competitions in a month, 40 competitions in a year. I think that's where he's going to be this year, Steve. That's the kind of level that we're talking about. And that makes him a busy guy, a popular guy, but a busy guy. And it's a hard job. I don't know if you've ever put on anything like this, Steve, where you have to stand up in front of a crowd and introduce a group or a team or whatever else and, you know, prize giving and all that kind of thing. And it's surprisingly difficult, especially when the lights are shining in your face. You've got some foreign tongue-twisting names to deal with. And as I said, things can happen during the show that can affect the running. And he's got to be on top of that the whole time. So it is a difficult job to do. And he does it very, very well. He wouldn't be getting invited to all those events if he was not. Back to you, Steve.
So, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about Bob's, you know, let's talk about his competitions now. Um, so we didn't touch on his age. As this is a podcast, he's 56 years old. He was born in 1965. Rochester, New York, upstate New York. So he's a Buffalo yep. Bills fan. I can tell by his Instagram page. He's got some Buffalo Bills stuff on there. So he's a big Bills fan. I believe he now lives in Georgia based on, you know, some of the research I did, but I'm not hundred percent sure on that. I believe he does live in Georgia now. So he moved to the warm weather. So, Boy, it's lovely you know, so we, we talked about his first few official competitions, but one of the, the competitions, you know, we'll kind of go over. Um, he got in 87 is when he got at the junior nationals heavyweight first. And I talked about that earlier he then the next year, the NPC USA championships and the heavyweight competition got eighth in 89. He did three major competitions, NPC nationals. He got fourth North American championships, got fourth and the NPC USA championships and the heavyweight competition. He got second hmm. next year in 1990 lightweight heavyweight competition. He got fifth 1993 eighth at the NPC USA championships. Two years later, 15th at the USA Championships. And then in 96, he got eighth at the NBC Nationals. 99, he got second at the NBC Nationals. And then in 2000 was his first place at the super heavyweight competition at the NBC USA Championships. 2001, he was at the Toronto Pro, got fifth. In nine champions, he got 11th. The next year at the Toronto Pro 2002, he was on stage interviewing the top competitors, uh, several of them, Phil Heath, Jay Cutler, you know, the usual suspects. And nine of champions, he got second in 2002. And then Mr. Olympia, he got 18. So this guy, definitely a top 20 bodybuilder to speak. 2000, 2000 to 2002 was when he was peaking. Top 20 Mr. Olympia, look, 18th place. That's amazing. That means you're the 18th top bodybuilder in the world. So got to give him a lot of respect for that mobster. Um, <clears throat> also in 2002, Southwest Pro Cup, <clears throat> not an easy competition. He got second place. Arnold Classic, 11th in 2004, Nine of Champions, 6th in 2003. And then he got first place in the 2006 Masters Pro World. So this guy, um, you know, he did a lot of competitions over the course of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. So, Mobster, touch a little bit on your thoughts on that, and we'll start getting into his steroids. So, I think there's this thing. I actually did a very, very quick, I mean, very rough count. It was probably somewhere just short of 30 competitions over those years, guys. And any of you that have competed know that's a hell of a number. I mean, especially multiple competitions in a year. Arcadville, you guys are starting out. Sometimes you compete quite a lot just to get experience and to learn about condition and how you recover and so on and so forth. I've competed multiple times in a year. My preference was always as a strength athlete for once a year, peaking for a big competition. So as I said before, now that was exhibition work, three, four times a year suited me a little bit more than that of my absolute best, but it's hard work. So 30 competitions, it might not put him in the record books, but it's a good number of events. And something that was interesting that Steve touched on right at the finish there was winning the Masters Pro World in 2006, that's when he retired. And incidentally, because Steve had mentioned it already, I suspect that the interviews that he talks about with other Olympia athletes kind of give him a flavor for what he was going to be doing in the future. And in fact, I recall 
from reading one interview again, bodybuilding.com, we discussed this with his wife at the right time. They decided on that's what they were going to do, and there was a different direction coming up. Opportunities, I think, Steve were presenting himself. Let's go for steroids, as Steve said. He was a 90s bodybuilder, touching into the 2000s, which we already know. So we'll, we'll, we'll look at the steroid cycle, yep. and I'll let Steve run the show here. Of well, what let's, a 90s-2000 bodybuilder was using. Well, let's kind of go over his thoughts on bodybuilding. Um, he's He's got some unique opinions on bodybuilding monster. I'm sure that you've, yeah. you've, you've read them. He talks yes, about how that modern physiques, there's no way that they're better than past eras. But he also makes the argument, if someone like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was mid-70s, yes. a beast, winning Mr. Olympias, if he was around today, with everything guys have access to, the equipment, the information, the steroids, the drugs, everything, he would be a different athlete. So yes. he says that, look, it's you got to look at it both ways. And he says that, look, the state of bodybuilding today, you can make any argument you want. But at the end of the day, you can't blame the judges because – you know, it's kind of like the, and he says, quote unquote, dog chasing its own tail argument. It's <laughs> not, the, you can't blame the judges for this. It's everyone's fault entirely. So, uh, you know, judges at the end of the day, he says, you can award the best physique that is on stage that day. That's all they have access to. They can't tell, they can't steer how bodybuilding, bodybuilding's direction. So, you know, it's a, it's an interesting opinion he has. It's a mix of old school bodybuilding thinking mobster with modern bodybuilding thinking. So, you know, his view at the end of the day with steroids is, look, it's out there. Guys are going to use it. Yeah. You can't blame them if that's who is going to win Mr. Olympia. If you've got to run all this shit to win Mr. Olympia, then you know what? You got to do it. You can't run some Deca, some D-Bowl, and some Primo like they were doing back in the 70s. And, and end up getting a top 10 Mr. Olympia. It's just not going to happen today. So touch a little bit about that mobster. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll touch on two things here, Steve. One, which you've already mentioned, and it's obvious. There's an argument that suggests that the way that judges judge influences perhaps the, the athlete's thoughts for the next competition. Oh, such and such was judged on condition. Therefore, I should get in condition for my next competition. Such and such was judged on size. Therefore, I should get bigger for my next competition. But I'll tell you something else that Bob's touched on as well. And I think what you just said was correct. One of the things he said, it was one of those things that he learned as he got older and especially towards the end of his career. And of course, in his role that he plays in the industry right now. And he said, it was two things. One was recovery. And he says, I don't think I recovered enough. I was training too much. As an example, again, and this is probably because he's such a busy guy. He says, I'm very, very lucky, for example, to train as much as five days a week, he says. And I can't think how I used to train, but again, this is when he was an athlete, which is why the cycle that we're going to talk about and the gear that we're going to talk about would have influenced that, and specifically, again, for the judgment at the time, versus being the MC and the role that he plays now. So quite simply, he's so busy, he can't get into the gym as much as he should. However, it means his recovery is better because, quite simply, he's not getting into the gym as much as he used to. So in other words, he's not overtraining sleep. He's not constantly pounding his joints. He can't because he's, he, he physically can't get into the gym. He's traveling, he's on stage, he's not able to do those things. So, perversely, because he keeps himself in very good nick for a retired athlete, 
and said certainly still a physical specimen, uh, you know, it's actually kind of done him some good not to be able to continue to pound his joints, et cetera, et cetera. But what he did talk about in terms of modern building, he says, I would prefer, and this is very true probably again of a lot of other athletes, Flex Weavers as an example, and other athletes of that time, is, uh, when they retired, they look back and they say, I would like the modern bodybuilder to focus more on condition over size. He says, and I think what happens, and we could probably argue that this is true, where, where we're talking about, for example, and I can think of one example, I'm going to name this particular guy, hope he doesn't get upset, Roly Winkler, who can look absolutely fucking amazing before a competition, and then with one or two exceptions, come on's looking a little bit too full and lacking that dryness, been absolutely fucking monstrous, very physically impressive, but not quite at the potential that we would like to see that dry, gnarly look that would win him competitions. And on a rare occasion, when he's managed to combine the two things, he's kicked ass. He's been in the top three. He's won classes. He's won events. So it's one of those particular things. I think it's one of his Rob's particular personal thoughts on, on, on the way athletes should look and should present themselves versus, as he says, and as Steve's touched on earlier on, judges having zero choice but to judge the person in front of them. And the problem, again, I think what also ties into this, Steve, is how you look online, how you look in your social media, and sometimes being judged on that versus how you should look on stage. And so, again, Bob, focusing in his mind on condition over size. It's all well and good, as Steve quite properly says, that if a, a 2020 or 21 or 2022 version of Arnold appeared, would he be 20 or 30 pounds heavier? Yes. Would he be in condition? There's the question, because I think Arnold would do what it took to win, not necessarily being a ripped 20 or 30 pounds heavier on stage. And Arnold was never that big on stage. I think his best body weight in... 73, 74 was only 225. So 255, for example, conditioned Arnold would kick motherfucking ass. Where a 260, 270, not quite conditioned, would be a fucking freak. And where he'd still kick ass would be down to the judging criteria. But then you can only judge what's in front of you. And I think Steve also would touch on the cycles on, on the PEDs again. So look at the physique that Bob was presenting back in the day versus the physiques that are available now. What kind of cycles are we thinking about here, Steve? We're not, I don't think Bob, in my opinion, was actually going to be that high of a cycle user, but the cycles were starting to creep up towards the end of Bob's career. He came out of the sport when the cycle started to be three grams, four grams, and five grams. What do you think? So around the 90s, things started to evolve. We started to see guys kind of separate themselves from the pack. And yeah. evidence of that is someone like Samir Banu. Samir Banu was a Mr. Olympia champion in the early, early 80s. Samir Banu, by the 90s, he would have been, you know, laughed off stage, sadly. You know, he wouldn't have been able to compete in the overall uh, Mr. Olympia. So things started changing. And one of the things that started changing bodybuilding throughout the 80s into the 90s is Trembolone. And another thing is, is HGH. And another thing is insulin, using insulin yes. with HGH. That was allowing you to go from 195 pounds at five foot seven, five foot eight to 240, 250 pounds at five foot eight. And in Bob's case, he's 
you know, he's a, he's a big guy. He's over six foot tall. He was an American gladiator. They don't have American yeah. gladiators who are my height. All right. So American gladiators are going to be over six foot tall. He's a beast, absolute beast genetically as it is. So yeah, yeah, yeah. in his situation, if he's going to try to keep up with his competition, he's going to have to, you know, bring out the big guns. So Trembolone, very, very important steroid. Um, look, it was available human grade. Negma from France offered a human grade. It was taken off the market. Now it's all underground. And it's a cheap steroid to get. And a lot of guys back in those days, they used the pellets. And then, you know, we've talked about it in a prior podcast. Yeah. And so it's not that hard to get a hold of in, in the 90s. They were getting a hold of it. How much were they using? That's up for debate. I would think from 300 to 500 to 800. Yeah. I mean, you got to use as much as you got to use to try to keep up with your competition, right? So, I mean, it's it's not it's probably five six hundred milligrams a week. You know, they were they were messing around with, it and they were using the acetate, the short acting ester. So they were injecting it every day or every other day. The other one, the HGH, I talked about. How much HGH were they using in those days? As much as they were able to get. Now, in those days, how how did you get HGH? It's not like it is today, we just walk into an anti-aging clinic and they'll write, gladly write you a prescription for HGH if you pay them. Well, back then what they would do, they'd go to AIDS patients who were getting the HGH that, were, that was government subsidized to them. And they would basically buy the HGH off those AIDS patients. As sad as that is, that's how it worked. And that's what dealers were doing in those days. And then the dealers would take the HGH, sell it to these bodybuilders and make make a little margin on that. Make a little. That's that's a little arbitrage that they would do. And so, guys, in those days, they were taking HGH. How much HGH were they taking? As much as they could, they could afford. You know, five IU's, ten IU's, fifteen IU's, whatever it took. They were gonna they were gonna use. Now today, we know that guys are using a lot more. They're using in the 20s, 20, 20 25 IU's. I think in those days, ten IU's was a solid dose. And maybe a little insulin before their meals to kind of help shuttle in their new nutrition. So something 10, 12 IUs of HGH and maybe five, six IUs of insulin total a day would be, you know, would be, would be something that they would take to get those huge physiques in those days. And he was a huge guy. What was he? Mobster 260, 280 at one point at his peak. 20, in the off season? And 255, 260 on according to the statistics. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a big guy. So I think those three, the trend issues insulin would have been the core to his cycle. What else, what else do you think they were using? Well, I'll tell you what it is, Steve. I was thinking not just for the bodybuilding career, but the, as we've mentioned already, guys, the, the, the career as a gladiator was an interesting one for me in terms of what you could be using. The HGH again, right? You've got to remember, you don't need to be super ripped when you're a gladiator, but you do need to still be, as we would say here in the UK, a specimen. It would be nice to see your abs. I think the risk of injury as a gladiator is incredibly high, Steve. I mean, the amount of athletes, both the guys that are competing against the gladiators and gladiators themselves, the, the risk factor for you getting injured, falling off a apparatus, swinging around, getting hit with those objects, <laughs> the stuff when they've rolled around the, the arena in cages, and God knows, the, the number of things that will come up from the producers and the production team, the risk of injury is incredibly high. And I don't know about the American gladiators but here in the uk for example the salary was something again it depended on where you was and how you was viewed by the public but a good example we had uh, a gladiator here in the uk called wolf who actually physically matter trained in his gym 
uh, Mick Van Wick. He was known as Wolf Out of Gladiators. And I think we actually sent some of our UK guys, including Wolf, over to, to America. Now, your athletes in the States were bigger. That's just, just that's how it is. Bob is a big physical specimen. But again, injuries, putting one athlete up against another athlete, including the Gladiators himself, as well as some of the more aggressive, actually competing members of the public. So I'm thinking, I mean, we were talking about in modern uh, Psalms, for example, but it's not a Psalm, would be GW, just to give you the energy to compete. Those arena shows, Steve, are an all-day-long thing. It's not, it might, might one hour of primetime TV, but it's recorded over a day or sometimes a weekend. So, you know, just to set up the events. And again, injuries. That's why you never had the same athletes visible in every single show. Some would be brought forward, but they would be brought forward in such a way that they were low-risk injuries because they were a heel, as they would be in, in wrestling, or because they, you know, were a good guy and was popular with the crowds, but you wouldn't necessarily risk them for injuries. So I'm thinking, and again, this is something for, for, with regards to performance-enhancing drugs, the PEDs, as we say, for Bob. Not as high as you would expect. And I say that because I think both being a big bodybuilder, the one who's competing, and then Titan in Gladiators was a question of him holding size all the time, being able to perform athletically for the Gladiator shows. And I mean, quite simply, it's going to be difficult, not impossible, but difficult for the Gladiators to be jabbing themselves, to be taking loads of drugs, because again, it's an arena show. It depends whether you're on the road or sometimes these things are. And, and again, with, with Bob now traveling around, I can see that Bob would be someone that'd be on TRT nasty. But my, my gut feeling is that Bob was one of those guys who, for want of a better phrase, was naturally big. Now, I mean that with performance enhancing drugs, with the training, because don't forget, guys, we mentioned already, training, competing, never mind training from the age of 13, training from the age of 12, competing at the age of 13. But I think he's one of those guys who's naturally able to hold on to a certain level of size. So if, for example, Steve is doing TRT now, he's still, as I mentioned earlier, a big guy. But, but to how many bodybuilders that would be doing three, four, five grams a week? And for example, the drug that you've already mentioned, very popular during the 90s and 2000s, would be Tren. Tren is an awful drug for him to be using, for example, as a gladiator. The, the, the effect on your conditioning, the effect on your cardio, it'd be great for making him look good, be great for keeping the muscle on the bone, but the risk of injury would be incredibly high. And the, the uh, uh, effect on his conditioning, for example, would be awful. So this is what makes me think that Bob's one of those guys that was using the lower end of the numbers and was still able to have that size and that build that Bob had throughout his bodybuilding career and later on into his gladiatorial career. What do you think, Steve, in terms of that kind of stuff? I can see what we could talk about with athletes like Bob versus Bob himself. I think genetically, and you said it already, He's a big man, a big, big physical specimen. It's a question of, as he says himself, condition or a bodybuilding show versus athleticism, for example, for the gladiatorial stuff. And the drugs that taken for either of those two things would differ. And I think the simple yeah. fact that he's able to hold muscle now, even as an MC, suggests to me that he doesn't need a lot of drugs to stay big. Now, whether that's pro competition winning is different. What do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I agree with that for sure. And it just depends on what you're trying to do. So we can take, you know, what what he's using to be a heavyweight 
competitor versus yes. what he would be using to do something like American Gladiator or do something more athletic like that. So I think another steroid that can kind of bridge the gap between those two, and this is a steroid that they were using heavily in the 70s and early 80s, and then they kind of were still using it into the 90s, was Primobolin. And a lot yes. of guys, you know, they rave about Primobolin. But I think I think Primobolin in that time would have been something that they really used very liberally. I think they probably would use it 1,200, 1,500 milligrams a week, along with what I talked about earlier, the trend, the ACH, the, the insulin. It can kind of be H added. Yeah, yeah, and the actually, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but the HGH for both sides, both for the bodybuilding shows, and especially for his gladiatorial career, I can see that being big. And suddenly enough, guys, the ability to earn a good income as a gladiator, where you're essentially on a contracted salary versus winning prize money for a bodybuilding competition and hoping to be sponsored. So as an example, again, and I mentioned the number just now, that being paid in the case of the athlete I mentioned already, £90,000 uh, in, the, in the 90s, equivalent of probably $110,000, now per annum, but it'd be actually higher if the, if uh, for, for the gladiators, if for athletes uh, still competing, uh, would make you be able to afford that uh, the, the growth hormone. And again, this is one of those ones that's going to keep you lean looking, but especially help you recover from those niggling strains, pains, and aches that are going to come from competing, being hit, being hitting athletes, falling off of things, swinging around, all that kind of stuff. I would not want to be a 280 pound former bodybuilder hanging off of ropes, swinging across arenas, rolling around on the floor, getting into gladiatorial type fights, et cetera, et cetera, uh, without growth hormone to back me up and help me recover from those injuries, from the, just, just recovering from bruises, Stephen, impact stuff, never mind the strain of being a heavy bodybuilder, falling onto the floor, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, the level, I think people misunderstand because it's a TV show, just how athletic some of those guys are. And something that's worth mentioning, regardless of whether we talk about PDs or not, is that an awful lot of top professional bodybuilders, and I'm including body Bob here, to, to get to, as Steve said earlier, in the 18th place in the Mr. Olympia is rare enough in and of itself. But what we see an, an awful lot of guys that used to be involved in some other sport to a decent level, perhaps not a high level, before, whether that's football, basketball, baseball, whatever. They were nearly always semi-decent athletes before they switched over to bodybuilding, or in this case, bodybuilding and later into gladiators. So you need to have that athletic ability. You can't, for example, Steve, be a 300-pound bodybuilder and just walk into a role as a gladiator. It's just not going to happen. If bodybuilding is the only thing you've ever done, if it took you all that time to add that muscle, you're probably not going to be a good gladiator. Uh, whereas if you've had some sort of sport in wrestling, for example, school wrestling or, or American pro-American pro, pro football in the States and then switched into bodybuilding, you can have some athletic ability, which would be great as a gladiator. And even in, there's something else that's worth mentioning that probably ties in with the bodybuilding perhaps. As a gladiator, you need to be able to work the audience, a bit like pro wrestling, Steve. So, and, and again, there's stuff there. I can see that the cycles that we could talk about with pro wrestlers is probably going to be very, very similar to the cycles that would be used by the gladiators because you are throwing yourself in around the arena, you're doing sport and stuff, whether you're jumping off the top ropes as a wrestler, 
whether you're being pinned, whether you're competing uh, as, a, as a wrestler again, sometimes 40 weekends of the year. The gladiators is a little bit different. It, it, it tends not to be a year round uh, event, especially back in the day. However, you will still be doing promos. You will still need to turn up for certain uh, media events. And you're still, again, you need to be injury free. You need to look good. So these things, tying in with your natural athleticism and PEDs, growth forming in my mind is probably above and beyond the cycles that would be done. Probably the drug that I can see these guys running year round versus, for example, a trend cycle or a primo cycle. But what do you think in terms of that sort of stuff? Yeah, I was going to say uh, you got to include Masteron, you got to include Winstrol, you got to ha have these drying compounds. I think Anavar would have been something too that was really, really big in the early 90s. You have to remember late 80s, um, it got taken off the market for a couple of years. You couldn't get Anavar to save your life. And it's amazing what happens in situations like that. Something gets banned or taken off the market and people want it. People are like, I got to have Anavar, I got to have Anavar. <laughs> And the yeah. only way you could get Anavar in those two years is if someone had a stash of it, number one, or number two, someone sold you fake Anavar. So that's what happened during that time. So Anavar, the price of Anavar skyrocketed during those two years. And then once it started coming back again underground, the price has never come down since. It's still to this day a very, very expensive steroid just because of the demand for it. But Anavar is a great steroid. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, Someone like him, they'd be running over 100 milligrams a day of Anavar in those days. Winstrol, yeah. 50, 100, even 125 milligrams a day. Masteron, eh, you know, it started coming around more in the 2000s, but Masteron is a possibility. If he was going to mess around with Masteron, he'd be running five, 600 milligrams a day, uh, a week, I'm sorry, of Masteron, the injectable Masteron as a DHT derivative. And then Proviron would have been something too. Uh, that they may have messed around. And the nice thing about Proviron, it's not liver toxic. So you can throw it into a cycle. It binds to SHBG, has a lot of benefits of hardening and all kinds of good stuff. So those are all options that they could have been running in those days when he was competing at that level. So um, it's, it's really, really, uh, he's, he's, an, he's, he's, I think he's a really, he's a, he's a great person overall. My final thoughts on Bob, he's a great person. Uh, from what I've seen, he doesn't, you know, a lot of people take shots at him. The, all the people taking shots at him are all scum, the scum of the industry. Every single one. That's <laughs> what I've seen. Hey, I was going to take a shot, so you might have to put me on the list. It's not a not horrible shot, guys. It's, 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 it's a little suggestion. Someone come up in one of the previous podcasts and said, is that voice real? And the answer is no. He doesn't talk like that like Steve and I are doing on his podcast. He, here's the thing, right? It's about, and I'm going to touch on this and my, my final thoughts here, Steve, as well. I touched on this earlier on. Bob is a professional, and I, I want you to go back and listen to what I said earlier on. And what I mean by that, same again. He's, he's aware of how the sport works. He's aware of his place within the sport. He's getting those shows He's doing that business. He's talking, like I said already, I can see him 2022, Steve, 30, 40 shows this year, in my opinion. And that means that's not just in the States, but that's around the world. That makes him a busy, busy guy. If he's able to keep his training in, best of luck, Bob. So the voice is part of that role. He's not down the shops. He's not in Walmart going, hi, guys, how are you? 
that that's kind of on, but it's part of what gets him the work. He sounds that's a commanding voice. He knows the names of the athletes, no matter what competition he's at. He handles his shit. He handles changes to the competition running. If something comes up, a curtain falls down, someone faints, it's all dealt with. That's what makes him a professional. And the voice, the voice of bodybuilding, that's the reason he's got that name. It's the reason why he's known as the voice of bodybuilding, is an affectation. But it works. It's an exaggerated persona, if you like. Slightly more than perhaps he would be talking to the wife and kids when he gets home, or as I said, down Walmart shopping or whatever. He's definitely he's not he's not presenting, he's not wearing that shiny suit, he's not doing that voice. So it's a little bit of a gym. He doesn't talk like that all the time, guys. But then that's because he's that's the same as you would have anybody that you see on TV on a Saturday night or, or chat show. They're not that funny all the time. They don't talk like way all the time. So yes, it's a bit of an affectation, but ultimately. Bob has become a professional's professional. He's worked out where the media is going. He's made sure he's available. He's a pro. He's done these. He's, he's taken pro body working with Dan and he's spun it into something else. He's done the, the interviews that Steve talked about before retiring from bodybuilding, and that becomes something in and of itself. That become a regular thing. It become part of the show, and it become. People like to see him on camera, like the way he presented himself when he was doing his interviews, and that became the MCM role, which is now known for. He does the stuff at the, the when 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 criticisms come up at press conferences, Bob's talks about these kind of things, but the guys haven't been listening when he talks about how you become a professional, how you present yourself, how you earn a career. I I I would take a stab in the dark, Steve, and I'm probably thinking he's earning himself a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year just doing his MCM just presenting himself that's why he's got such a small thing as you say on social media for his supplements yeah. he's extremely talented yeah he's extremely yeah. talented and gifted for he's that with this stuff he's making yeah. a good solid career from literally talking and presenting bodybuilding shows and that so that's the surprising thing this but i can think of one guy in this country that was close to it in terms of bodybuilding shows think think of an mc i can think of only one other name which escapes me right now lonnie tepper Lonnie Tepper, and he's actually kind of got a funky voice, but Lonnie was doing a lot of the Iron Man shows back in the day, and Bob has taken that role, and he's run away with it. He, as I said, he's become, as he says, the voice of Mr. Olympia, LLC, and that's true. So it's, if it's an affectation, it's that kind of thing. Do you want me to run into the end of the show now, Steve? Absolutely, yeah. It was a great, great show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll have more coming up. But Bob is an awesome guy. If you haven't checked out his stuff, you know, check him out, guys. Uh, you probably know who he is, even if you don't recognize him. I know a lot of you are listening to this who are fans of him. And, yeah, like I said, he's a great, great human being for sure. It shows you there's a career outside of being an on-stage bodybuilder and was ahead of the game doing this stuff way before anybody else. As always, guys, please note we are not doctors and the opinions in these podcasts are hours and hours alone it's our view and based on our experience and views on the topic a podcast of informational purposes and entertainment so only the freedom of speech and the first amendment applies <laughs>